Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Mark chapter 9. This is a, another long chapter in the Gospel of Mark, so I want to get right into it, beginning at verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, we have to stop there because these are probably the most controversial verses in the entire chapter. What does Jesus mean when he says that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power? Some people will say that this means that Jesus expected to return within the lifetime of the apostles, but that would be very hard to square with some of the other things that Jesus said. For example, in Matthew 26, 34, when he said, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So I think it would be very odd for him to say that he does not know in one passage and that he does know in another. It it also doesn't seem to square well with the parables that he tells in Matthew's gospel about how important it will be to be patient during the long delay. He tells parables about virgins who fall asleep and about servants who get bored and begin to ignore the master's instructions. And he tells these parables, we're told in Matthew 24, 42, because we cannot know when the Lord is coming. So elsewhere in the Gospels, it it seems that Jesus is preparing his people for a long, indeterminate delay before the second coming. And that doesn't square very well with the idea that Jesus is predicting that he will return shortly in this passage here before us. The more likely interpretation, therefore, is that Jesus is referring to the transfiguration, which happens next in the very next verse. So the context makes that the preferable option. He has just told the disciples that he can't be the king they want him to be on this side of the cross. He has to go to the cross. He has to die and rise again. He has just rebuked Peter for seeking glory by some other road than the one which runs through the valley of suffering. And the disciples are are confused by that. They are downcast. They're disappointed. And so here we see Jesus giving them a glimpse of the kingdom of God in all its power and glory. Now, most will have to wait a real long time to see that. Most will have to die first to see that. But to some, he gives a much-needed preview. That seems to be the most reasonable understanding of what is going on here. So let's get back into the text at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. 
And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Just a quick note, anytime you're surrounded by people who are normally in heaven and they're talking, might be best if you were terrified just to say nothing at all. Just a quick note, that's for free. Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, as I said, this is a long chapter, so we're going to have to keep our comments brief, but you need to understand that there is a shift in Jesus' ministry after chapter 8, verse 21. From from about the midway point of chapter 8 in Mark's gospel onwards, Jesus spends a lot less time talking to the crowds and a lot more time in private instruction with the disciples. He's focused on the cross, and he is preparing his inner circle, his disciples, to lead on the other side. So the emphasis is on these sort of intense personal instruction uh, sessions that, that Jesus conducts, and this story is very representative of that theme. Now, he only takes three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. So this is an intimate experience, and it's a very intense experience. I told you off the top that Mark is proving his thesis. His thesis is that Jesus is the Son of God. In story after story, he gathers and piles up evidence, and in this story, he provides the most convincing evidence of all. Three reliable witnesses testify to the identity and significance of Jesus Christ, Moses, Elijah, and God himself. And it doesn't get any better than that right? God himself says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So that's the, that's the smoking gun. That is irrefutable evidence that Jesus is the son of God and the savior that we need. And from this point on, the disciples are being let in on the secret of who Jesus really is, but they still can't quite get their heads around what Jesus is needs to do. But that will come. All right, let's get back into the text of verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. Now, in Matthew's version of this, we're told that the disciples understood from this conversation that Jesus was referring to John the Baptist. Jesus was saying that John the Baptist was Elijah, so to speak. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament said that a a character like Elijah a sort of filled with the same sort of spirit as Elijah, that that a prophet like that would come in advance of the Messiah. And the disciples are saying, you know, we we were kind of looking for Elijah to come first. And And Jesus is saying, John is that character. He was the prophet that was sent to prepare the people of Israel to receive the Messiah. But they didn't listen to John. And they did to him whatever they pleased. And that, my friends, is an example of narrative foreshadowing. If they did that to John, Jesus is saying, what do you think they will do to me? What do you think they will do to you? Verse 14 goes on to say, and when they came to the disciples, came back to the rest of the group, 
they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, some of your Bibles will add, and fasting, as in this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and Fasting. The majority of the ancient manuscripts actually have it that way, but some do not. And so out of an abundance of caution, it usually appears as a margin note in your Bible. Either way, this story is in Mark's gospel because of how Jesus uses it to teach a lesson to the disciples. He wants them to understand that spiritual power cannot be assumed. The disciples are not traveling healers or exorcists per se. They are conduits for the power and authority of Jesus. Therefore, for that power to flow, two things are necessary. Faith in the recipients and also the dispensers of the power, and also spiritual intimacy and devotion. Now, the Father appears to have had very weak faith, and the disciples appear not to have prayed. And those things, particularly combined, will leave you ministering in the flesh Jesus says. And that is a huge problem, particularly against stiffer spiritual opposition, which apparently the disciples are meeting here. So the bottom line is, friends, that people leak. And if you are not regularly replenishing your spiritual gas tank through prayer and fasting, you will soon find yourself ministering on fumes. That's an important lesson. All right. Verse 39, they went on from there and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about 
who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now here we see that while Jesus has his sights set on the cross, the disciples have their eyes set on the glory of the kingdom. They want the power and the positions that will come in the kingdom of God, but they don't see yet that the road to glory will go through the valley of humility, service, and sacrifice. And Jesus is trying to get them to understand that in the kingdom of God, down is the way up. But the disciples are not ready to see that. Verse 38 John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no, by no means lose his reward. So in these verses, there's a little warning here about clickishness or clannishness. The key issue, Jesus says, is not whether they are with us, so to speak. The key issue is whether they are with Jesus. And that's a very important reminder in every day and age. Verses 42 to 50 contain some further teaching to the inner circle on the life of a disciple. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two eyes to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The main idea here is pretty straightforward. Jesus is telling the disciples they need to be extraordinarily vigilant in rooting out sin in themselves and they need to be extraordinarily careful lest they become the cause of sin in someone else. Now, Jesus is speaking in metaphor. He's, this is a rhetorical device called hyperbole, right? It's exaggeration to make a point. And we, this is very important to recognize. I was teaching in India a number of years ago, and I met a young man, very zealous for the Lord, uh, who, who only had one eye. And, the, and I asked one of the, the other members of the group, I said, what happened to the brother there? And, and he said, well, the brother's a new Christian, and he was working his way through the Bible, and he came across this teaching. And because he struggled with, with lust, with looking on women with lust, he actually tried to gouge out his own eye. And then thankfully, some other brothers came around and ex explained to him how this saying was to be understood. And obviously, there's a sense in which we need to have sympathy for that, uh, it can be hard for new Bible readers to understand, you know, the, the, the manners of speech that are common in the Bible. 
But there's also a sense in which it might be better to have the zeal without the understanding of the forms of speech than it would be to be simply indifferent towards sin, as I fear many in this culture and in this generation are. Whether Jesus is speaking in metaphor or not, what he's saying is absolutely clear. If you don't take drastic measures to fight sin in your life, then you have every reason to fear whether or not you're truly saved. If the Spirit of God is in you, if the Holy Spirit is in you, then there ought to be a holy hatred towards sin. And if you are comfortable, if you are making accommodations with your sin, then Jesus is saying you have every reason to expect that you will spend eternity in hell. That's a serious, serious passage. And he says, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't become a stumbling block to another believer. Don't set a bad example. Don't permit others what you simply can't deny yourself. See, that's what happens. A lot of people who have no sexual self-control, for example, will start talking about how, well, gee, maybe, you know, maybe we should be so concerned about all this. We will permit others what we can't deny ourselves. And Jesus says, oh boy, you better be real careful about that. Because the deepest place in hell is reserved for the one who causes little ones to stumble. Now, maybe you're offended at the mention of hell. Christians who look down their nose at hellfire preaching must face the awkward fact that Jesus talks a lot about hell in Mark's gospel, as he does in Matthew and Luke's gospel. Hell is serious business, and you need to take serious measures to ensure that your sin does not drag you down into it. That's the main thrust of the paragraph. But the last verse or two, a little bit tricky in some of the specifics. We're not actually sure what that expression means about being salted with fire. Obviously, it was an expression in use in those days. It made sense to those people. It's no longer in use today, and so we can't be sure what it means. R.T. France, a very reliable middle-of-the-road commentator, makes a guess that is as good as any I've seen. He says that in this context, that expression speaks to one who follows Jesus as totally dedicated to God's service and warns that such dedication will inevitably be costly in terms of personal suffering. That may well be it. Point's pretty clear. Following Jesus is serious business. It involves regular spiritual discipline because we leak. It involves rigorous self-inspection because sin is insidious and deadly. It involves humility, sacrifice, and a long-term perspective because the road to glory leads inevitably through the valley of suffering, service, and the cross. Now, who's sufficient for these things? O Lord God, command what you will, but give what you command. Even still, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. 
We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.